Welcome to the Scholars Podcast, where we focus on conversations with inspiring leaders and talk to people with extraordinary minds. In today's episode, we have the privilege of talking once again with Dr. Gemma Sharp, an accomplished researcher and psychologist who has traversed many different fields in pursuit of understanding human health and well-being. Gemma Sharp has left a lasting mark on the fields of oncology, psychology, and mental health. She's a John Monash scholar who bridges the gap between scientific exploration and the intricacies of the human psyche. Dr. Gemma Sharp, welcome back to the Scholars Podcast. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that lovely introduction. It might be a good idea to perhaps update our listeners on the role that you currently have in the work that you're doing right now. I would love to. Thank you. So um, since we last chatted, I've become associate professor at Monash University and I lead the body image and eating disorders research group in the Department of Neuroscience, which is a really fantastic department full of amazing minds. And in my clinical work, um, we've just had a new statewide women's mental health service start just this year, 2023. And uh, I'm the senior clinical psychologist and research lead there. Sounds like you've got your hands full there. <laughs> That's, I like to keep busy, as I'm sure all of the scholars do. So, Gemma, tell us, how did you get into the field of body image and eating disorders? Yeah, so I, um, as you mentioned before, I started off in oncology, but um, I I found I really liked chatting with patients and um and they would talk to me about their body image concerns. Often they would have to have breasts removed um, for, for breast cancer patients. And I just found those discussions about body image to be really, really fascinating and how body image played a role in, in, in people's recovery from cancer. And it was through that that I transitioned to clinical psychology and my, my very first project in, um, in psychology was a skin cancer prevention project where I would actually show people um, images of themselves, like very early days of AI, uh, how, they, how their faces might age if they spent too much time in the sun. Um, it's, I, yeah, thank you for laughing. It, it was a really interesting project. Um, and so that, that was my first body image project. And then I, I had some wonderful mentors at Flinders University where I was doing my clinical psychology degree and um, they really inspired me to enter the world of eating disorders and I think I think I now reflect on it um, that I've always been someone who I think tries to advocate for the underdog and eating disorders are very much uh, I suppose considered niche and not considered core mental health treatment people with eating disorders are considered difficult and I really wanted to be an advocate for them uh, because I suppose to make sure that they got the treatment they deserved in order to recover. What is it, Gemma, that makes you passionate about this particular area? And I think um, I should say that I, I get to work with a lot of people with lived experience, obviously, as a clinician, but also in my research and just hearing their stories of how um, misunderstood they feel and how they they haven't had the opportunity to, to access the care that they deserve. And it just... 
um, it makes me really want to fight for them. And so that's why I go to work every day and putting, put on my fighting gloves, it almost feels like to, to make sure that people, um, get the get the treatment the best treatment i mean we're so far behind in terms of eating disorders research compared to other disorders we have a long way to catch up but i really enjoy a good battle could you perhaps share a pivotal moment or experience that solidified your interest in the field of body image and eating disorders? Uh, no, no issues at all. And um, one moment sprung to mind very quickly. And I think um, <laughs> I, I, um, I was picked for an eating disorder placement in my clinical training. I think it would have been 2014. And um, <laughs> it was quite a casual interview with my um, now ex excellent colleague, Professor Tracy Wade. She was basically like, oh, how do you feel about eating meals in front of other people as part of your placement? And I was like, great, free food. <laughs> Sounds like an it. awesome <laughs> placement. Um, you know, sign me up. And so I, I kind of went into it a little flippantly. And then in my first week on placement, um, we were in our team meeting and they spoke of a young woman who had a BMI of 11. So just for the listeners, a normal BMI is uh, 18.5 yeah, to 25. Mm. And we were told to prepare our reports for the coroner because this person was not going to make it. And so I realized that this was very serious very quickly and my flippant attitude to having free food was, was not um, – was not accurate and that we needed to help people quickly and that people do die from these disorders. So in your journey, Gemma, from oncology research to psychology, what insights from your earlier work have you found surprisingly relevant or applicable to your current focus? That's such a good question. And I think about it quite often, actually, because I think with eating disorders, it's very much a combination of physical and mental health monitoring. And so all of my early studies in biology, physiology, chemistry have come to fore um, in the management of eating disorders because of all the physical health risks. So I think if I was going to end up in any field of mental health, it was going to be this one. Let's talk about AI. How did you start in the AI research area? Do you know, I, uh, I suppose like, like I am describing, I seem to have fallen into it. Um, so back in 2018, I didn't even know what a chatbot was. <laughs> How embarrassing is that? Um, and it, uh, I was chatting with some friends who were uh, involved in suicide prevention and they were talking to me about how they could deliver 24-7 support with a, a chatbot um, through a social media platform. And I was like, oh, that's amazing because we know that suicide helplines are overwhelmed. There's no way that we can answer all the calls quickly enough. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? We should do something in eating disorders because we, we had absolutely nothing. Um, and I knew that the eating disorder helpline service were also completely overwhelmed. So 
I set about, um, tried to seek grant funding from 2018 onwards and was lucky enough to, to get some from the AMP Foundation in 2019. And that started our journey to develop the world's first positive body image chatbot. Um, and that launched in 2020. And now we have several chatbots and we're, you know, we're forging ahead with generative AI now. Uh, but really it was those antecedents in um, 2018 that started me on this path and we obviously didn't know about the COVID-19 pandemic back in 2018 but uh, none of us realised how important these online supports would end up being. So perhaps if you could elaborate a little bit further on the intersection of AI and mental health and and how you see AI's role in addressing these mental health challenges beyond body image and eating disorders? Absolutely. I mean, I think we are seeing a huge upswing in use of AI in a lot of medicine, which is fantastic. I I wish we had started it sooner, but it's great that we're doing it now. So I think there's a role for machine learning and AI in the prediction and detection of disorders. Um, so we can better, I suppose, gauge uh, who might progress down a certain disease path and who might not. So that's, I know that's certainly being done in a lot of disorders now. My good colleagues at Monash uh, do that in the field of epilepsy. In terms of um sort of more conversational support, that's definitely conversational AI. And that we're obviously seeing quite a bit in mental health, but also can be used in other fields. So um, helping people between consultations with their health professionals. So AI can be used to to give that um, chatting support, send reminders, those kinds of things, be a really engaging presence so that the person feels supported between treatment visits. Uh, Gosh, there's, I'm I mean, all the medical devices, something where we're working up at the moment is using a robot to provide meal support to people in, I'm using eating disorder space, but robot companions are becoming more commonplace, say in um, aged care, where there's a huge issue with loneliness. So all of these um, technologies can really, really help us deliver the best care. Now, you've got a public lecture coming up in September on eating disorders and AI. What can you tell us about the lecture? I don't want to give away too much. (laughs) Okay, well, maybe tease us a little bit. (laughs) I'd love to tease your listeners. Um, So I think what I'll be discussing, and I'm very lucky to have a wonderful lived experience person, Mia, uh, tell her story as well throughout the lecture, is uh, how how we started in conversational AI with our very first very basic chatbot um, all the way through to what we're delivering now, which is kind of additions to treatment. And then what's next for us? And that is really utilising technology like ChatGPT to almost play the role of therapist assistant. Um, at the moment, we the conversations we can have with patients are a little bit more limited, but with, um, with t- like generative AI, we can really have 
engaging conversations that really help patients when psychologists aren't free. And also uh, another project that I'll be chatting about is how we're using people's mobile phones to detect when they might be experiencing body image and eating disorder distress by the behaviours on their phone. So what apps they're using, are they typing, are they calling? We can actually predict if they're about to have an episode. Exactly, exactly. Really? Tell me me more about that. How does that work? So it's it's an area of research called mobile sensing. And we've been able to to do these predictions with um, some other areas like anxiety, depression, but body image distress and eating disorders are still a little bit further behind. But we know that... um, that phone behaviours are reflective of what's going on in people's minds and uh, we can use AI algorithms uh, using passive sensors in people's phones. So everyone has sensors in their phones. Like it can tell uh, if you're you're moving where you are, if you're texting, um, if you've got like your screen light on. These are all passive sensors with data being collected all the time. You're just not aware of it. So we're going to harness that sensor data to be able to predict if you're feeling distressed or not. Fascinating. Does it, and that does does that apply to to all ages? Say you know a a twelve year old with a mobile phone, or you know mum who's just turned eighty and still likes to use a mobile phone. Exactly. I mean, I think the predictive algorithms would have some age dependency, as you're talking about there. And I think with risk of body image distress and eating disorders being a little bit in the younger area, that's where we're starting out. But there is absolutely every opportunity across the age span. Gemma, you've engaged both in academia and private practice. So how do these two realms complement each other? And and how does your clinical work inform your research and vice versa? Yeah. And I should say now I'm in public practice. Mm, yes. <laughs> I feel like the, the nexus of research and public practice is <laughs> you, really close. Exactly. The fact that my research unit is next door to the hospital, like the physical proximity is helpful as well. Um, but I think I've always loved doing both research and clinical work because of the complementarity and I think um, my patients always gave me ideas for research projects and then I would run these research projects by them for their their initial thoughts so I think there was always a a reciprocity there Um, and and I think my patients appreciated that I, I was involved in research and was trying to push innovations forward because uh, I always tried to offer them, I, I suppose, the latest findings to, to help them in their recovery. But they never realised, or maybe they did, I hope they did, how much they helped me in formulating what was necessary to help people recover, where the gaps in service provision were. And given that this landscape is always changing, Mm. how do you stay at the forefront of of new developments to ensure that what you're doing, your approaches remain innovative and effective? 
<laughs> That's such a good question. And I feel like if you ask my research team, they'd say <laughs> it's because she's like a magpie. She likes chasing shiny things and collecting them. Um, so I, I do spend a fair bit of time like looking at trends, uh, research trends on social media and obviously looking at the literature and attending conferences. So all, all the things you would think of, um, but also being across popular media as well because not everything is published in the research literature that's relevant so I think I think just um, <laughs> looking well, at so a lot stay out of the New England Journal of Medicine <laughs> and, and, and head to the what the Herald Sun <laughs> absolutely it's, it's all it's all good information uh, so I think I, I suppose um and just learning from my colleagues as well. I have some wonderful colleagues in the field of AI. Uh, I think my, my research group would say, Gemma, can we please can we please not have another area of research just yet? We just need to finish this one first. Let's close the loop on. Oh on gosh, these, exactly, these exactly. Yes. I think it's just I'm just very lucky that I get to be excited about so many cool areas of research. And just on that, what are some of the the big misconceptions or stigmas that you've encountered when it comes to body image and eating disorders and how do you work to address them? Uh, yes, I mean, I think I think we're actually doing a little bit better on that front just with uh, body image and eating disorders getting a lot of press, particularly this year with our Australian of the Year being in that space. Uh, but there still are definitely misconceptions. I think when I go to, for example, a party that, that doesn't have all researchers there, um, people will say, oh, I wish I had anorexia. And I just go, what? no, exactly. I go, um, no, no, you, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. And what they're meaning is, is that they're dissatisfied with their weight and a misconception that eating disorders only occur in people in smaller bodies when, in fact, eating disorders can occur at any size body and, in fact, are more common in people in larger bodies. So that's definitely a misconception. I think that is promoted by the media a little bit with when they use particular imagery when talking about eating disorders. I also think something that comes up is uh, eating disorders are a cry for attention. Um, I can assure you that there are many other ways you could get attention than an eating disorder. Uh, they are physical and mental health conditions that are very serious. No one would choose to have an eating disorder. I want to touch quickly on the uh, on the scholarships, if I if I may. How Absolutely. Has been- how has being a John Monash scholar positively impacted your career since your studies? Indeed. Like, I feel like I've never left the Monash family. Like I, I went from being a, a John Monash scholar to having this academic appointment at Monash. I just... I feel like whenever Monash is associated with something, it's good luck for me. I just go, that's going to be good. Um, so I think, I mean, I really think that the scholarship, I mean, study at Cambridge, how many people get that opportunity? It's just, it's just incredible when I reflect on it. And, and I think I was p- potentially a little young to really realise the gravitas of it. It's only been in later years that I've realised how fortunate I was to have that and how it really set me on the journey that I'm on today. I, I would not be the, the clinical psychologist and academic without 
that um, excellent grounding in scientific method in lab sciences. I mean, it means that our the group I lead, we can do preclinical work all the way through to really translational work. I if I had just been trained as a psychologist, there's no way I could do that bench to bedside. Um, and I think that I suppose our research group is known for that diversity. And I, I have my my time at Cambridge and the scholarship to thank for um, being able to be the, the um, diverse researcher and clinician that I am today. And just a, a follow-on question, what would you say the impact that the scholarship has had on on your education and your career and the community at large as a result? I mean, I won't lie, having a Cambridge degree on your CV does open doors, doesn't it? Like it's just people people just, I, I'm sure, assume that I'm much smarter than I am because of it. Um, <laughs> I think being part of that alumni is really, really important. Uh, Cambridge has a very thriving alumni. Over 800 years of history is just incredible. Um and in, in terms of impacting the community, I think the the John Monash scholarships, uh, compared to some other scholarships, I think were always about giving back to the Australian community and the worldwide community. I think we were chosen for that and it has very much continued since its early days that they picked people they knew who were going to have an impact. And I, it's something I think about every day. It's, I don't do research just for it to be published in some journal that maybe three people read. I do research that has a positive impact on patients' lives, their, um, their families' lives and the community's lives. And a final question to you, Gemma. What do you feel is the value of postgraduate education, particularly if you study overseas and, and gaining that, say, global perspective? I could not speak more highly of postgraduate education, but I, I suppose your listeners have probably picked up on that by now. I think postgraduate education, particularly at wonderful institutions like Cambridge, allows your imagination to run wild. All your research ideas and plans, it's just a, a place where you can think freely and that's where innovation occurs. It's not a business as usual. It's where you're allowed to have a vision and bring that back to Australia. And without that experience, I, I doubt I would be in the place I am today. Associate Professor Gemma Sharp, thank you once again for joining us on the Scholars Podcast. Best of luck with your public lecture in September, and we will be certain to stay in touch with you as your career develops. Thank you for your time today and good luck. Thank you so much for having me.